seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. Before Harry Potter, before Gandalf, before Dungeons and Dragons, there was a wizard who was, well, he was a very good man, but a very bad wizard. For Americans living in the first half of the 20th century, the most iconic wizard of the era was without a doubt the Wizard of Oz. Often described as the first truly American fairy tale, Frank L. Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz caused a sensation when it was first published in 1900, spawning Broadway plays, numerous sequels, and film adaptations, the 1939 movie starring Judy Garland being, of course, the most iconic. As another thoroughly American wizard myself, I find the Wizard of Oz to be a fascinating character. Unlike the continental wizards of old, the Merlins and star-spangled court astrologers, the Wizard of Oz possesses no supernatural magical powers. Instead, he is imbued solely with the raw American magic of showmanship, opportunism, and bullshit. To arrive in an overtly enchanted land, rife with feuding witches and talking trees, and then set yourself up as their wizard? That takes chutzpah. But for me, the Wizard of Oz's charm isn't his special effects the fearsome green head of Oz the Terrible. No, what I love is the man behind the curtain, the huckster who proves to be more magical as a mere human than he ever was as a towering, omnipotent icon. The magic Oz uses to rule Oz is all about image and identity. The people of Oz believe a great and powerful wizard rules over their land, and so he is content to let them continue believing so. But as he doles out his gifts to the Tin Man, Scarecrow, and Cowardly Lion, the very same magic is at play. Diplomas, medals, and testimonials are, after all, all objects of image and identity. When I set out to become a wizard, I thought a lot about The Wizard of Oz. One, because I was obsessed with the book series as a kid and loved Oz and its weird-ass magic and child heroes and convoluted politics. But more than that, I thought about the towering green head and the small man behind the curtain. How, I wondered, could I be both? How could I use the image of the wizard and the awe and wonder that very idea inspires while simultaneously throwing wide the curtain to let everyone know I was just a small man doing my best and that there's powerful magic in this contrast? Of course, I'm not the only one to be enchanted by the land of Oz. More than 120 years later, Adults and children the world over are still fascinated by this mysterious land somewhere over the rainbow. Since Frank L. Baum's original works entered the public domain, there have been countless reprintings, adaptations, movies, musicals, cartoons, and collectibles emblazoned with the Oz brand. My guest today, Victoria Calamito, is a collector, content creator, 
an Oz aficionado who hosts the Oz vlog on YouTube and the TikTok account at the Oz vlog. She possesses an astounding collection of Oz memorabilia, such as a Wizard of Oz sweeper vacuum released by Bissell to promote the 1939 film. Her knowledge of Oz lore on and off the screen and page is unparalleled, and so she was who I turned to for help with today's quest. Because, despite the doorman's insistence that nobody gets in to see the wizard, not nobody, not know how, today we're going to follow the yellow brick road and learn how to see the Wizard of Oz. Hello, Victoria. Hello, how are you today? I'm wonderful. I think we've gone somewhere over the rainbow and ended up in the enchanted land of this podcast as a ritual. (laughs) What's our magic word going to be? Well, I think there's only one word we could possibly choose, and that is Oz. Oz. Great. On the count of three, say it with me. One, two, three. Oz. Oz. (laughs) What a fun word to say. It is a very whimsical word. And it's so succinct. It is. Yeah. I like, you know, I feel like so many other magical lands have these convoluted land like names and Oz is just so, there you go. Compact. You're very into the Wizard of Oz. You could say that. (laughs) How did that all start? Well, legend has it that I saw the movie for the first time when I was two years old. I have no conscious memory of this, Um, but we had just suffered a house fire and we were staying at my grandparents' home And my grandma popped in her 50th anniversary copy of The Wizard of Oz for us to watch. And um, it was uh, love at first sight for me. My sister was a little scared of the flying monkeys. My mom has always been scared of the witch ever since she was a little girl. (laughs) And I was hooked from that day forward. So even as a kid, you were like, more Wizard of Oz, all things Wizard of Oz, let's go. Obsessed. Um, Would finish the tape, immediately rewind it and start it from the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow, that's awesome. See, it's one of those things. I feel like it's similar to Star Wars where I don't remember the first time I saw it. It was just sort of a movie. Just kind of remember watched. the impact it left. And like in like periodically just rewatching it. And every time it kind of feels like the first time in a way. There's always a yes, sort of like, and you always find something that you did not notice the last time you watched it. Yeah. I know that even um what as I, I rewatched it earlier today in preparation for the interview, and I was thinking about um my mother always telling us when whenever we would end up watching it, she would tell us the stories about how when she was a kid it played on I think NBC was the network that played it each year. And it was a big deal for her family to go over to the neighbors who had the color TV and watch it with them. And it was very much this kind of communal ritual thing. Yeah, back when it was only on once a year, mm-hmm. it was an event. And right. everybody in the neighborhood knew when it was coming on and like, oh, no plans tonight. We're watching The Wizard of Oz. Um, we were spoiled, I think, growing up because, you know, we were blessed with the the magic of VHS. But mm-hmm. um, even with having that, there was still something so unbelievably magical for me about disappearing into that wonderful world. And then from there, from getting into the movie, when did you discover the books? I discovered the books. The first time I got my hands on a copy of an abridged copy of the book was in kindergarten. They had it in the Mm. kindergarten library, a very abridged copy. And I did steal it and still have it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, day school. I uh, still have your copy of The Wizard of Oz if you were looking for it from 1993. And then um, I got my hands on a full 
um, a full version of L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz when I was about 10 or 11 years old and read it cover to cover and was astonished at how different it was from the movie. Yeah. I did not, there was all of these extra plot twists and Dorothy was so much stronger in the mm. books than Judy Garland portrayed her to be. So I was like, wait a minute, there's more. <laughs> so I want, that's one of the things that I was looking forward to chatting about. So what are some of the key differences? Cause you know, we have an audience that might only be familiar with the movie. So what are some of the key differences that you note from the, the book to the film? Well, there's a lot of big differences. Most notably, it is not a dream in L. Frank Baum's book series. It is a mm -hmm. really, truly live place, as Judy Garland says at the end of the movie. It is, uh, and sh she is there for at least two months, according to some calculations that some readers did based on weather patterns and crop cycles. <laughs> so, uh, I love fans. So, yes. <laughs> so, it was not only a real place, but Dorothy was there for a very long time, and that was just in the first book, because a lot of people don't realize that the Wizard of Oz is not a standalone novel. It is a series of 14 books that just mm -hmm. the original author wrote. And since then, other quote unquote royal historians have taken on the mantle and that we are now up to nearly 50 canon Oz books. And then there's even non-canon ones too. I know yes, that. Yes, plenty. Um, I mean, you have the Wicked series, which is its own canon. Right. I mean, the Dorothy Must Die series. There tons of things have spawned from this original idea that L. Frank Baum had. Science fiction author Philip Jose Farmer wrote, I think, The Barnstormer in Oz or something <gasps> like that. That's considered one of the best Oz books. Fans really? love that one. Yes, okay, that's a big I, deal. <laughs> I'm, a big, I'm a big Philip Jose Farmer fan, so I need to actually read that one. But um, going back to the original book, I remember the most striking thing just, you know, when I reread it a few years ago was it doesn't end when they get back and... Oz flies away. They then go and they fight like the gnomes or I forget, is it the gnomes? It's the people that are throwing their heads at them, right? So that the gnomes come later, the hammerheads are the people you're hammerheads. speaking about. So basically yeah. Dorothy, the wizard flies away in his balloon. Dorothy's bummed. She was supposed to go with him. At this point, the, the scarecrow's ruling the Emerald City and they, she decides that the only way to get home is to go see Glinda, the Witch of the South, because, of course, Glinda's the Witch of the South. That's another difference from the mm -hmm. book to the movie. Uh, they took the Witch of the North, who was a separate person, and the Witch of the South combined them into Glinda, the Witch of the North, just to add even bookends to the story. So they decide to go see Glinda. And it's a whole third act that isn't in the movie of traveling to the South. And there's a whole nother set of obstacles. The Wicked Witch of the West, which was an inflated role for the movie to give it more of a three act structure. She was really more of just an inconvenience for the book for Dorothy to overcome. She was not the main villain. She only mm -hmm. appears in chapter. I think she first appears in chapter 12. She's there for about two chapters and then she's Melt City. So, um, you know, that's a really big difference. They made, they really gave the Wicked Witch of the West a starring role in the movie that she just didn't have in the book series. Now, there's two things that I remember um, notably of like the differences. And there's one that I like more in the movie and one that I like more in the book. Well, and in the book, what I really like is when they get to the Emerald City, if I remember correctly, they have to wear green eyeglasses that are like, you're required to like strap on and then everyone's like wow the emerald city is so emerald but it's not really and i think there's something very powerful in that sort of uh metaphor of the wizard's uh charlatan humbug magic you're right he requires citizens to wear green spectacles they are locked on with a key that yep. only the guardian yep. of the gate has and the outside of the city is studded with emeralds it's so bright that it hurts their eyes they strap on these glasses so that when they walk in everything looks green Mm -hmm. And um, 
that, that I, and when they leave again, cause Dorothy changes into a green silk dress. When they leave again to go fight the wicked witch of the West, they take off the glasses and Dorothy's dress has turned white. And mm-hmm. it's because on the inside of the actual city proper, it's all an illusion. Now inside the palace, it may be different, but outside where the common people live, it's all an illusion. That makes me think of like virtual reality or augmented reality where people are going to be living in these fantastic worlds. And then you take your goggles off and you're in like a really crappy room with a cubicle. <laughs> it's true. And I don't think it was accidental, this this idea that um, an American man falls into this magical land and turns it into a capitalist, phony society. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. when the matriarchy resumes power, the land becomes fruitful with magic again and becomes... Right. Uh, and money is outlawed, and it's a utopian socialist society again. God bless Ozma. God bless Ozma. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, uh, I want to I want to talk about Ozma and some of the later books. But the other thing that I really like in the movie, and I remember when I went back and reread the book, I was like, "Oh, this is one of my favorite parts of the movie, and it's different." Is the uh, the giving of gifts after they come back and connect? Because I think. You know, I think a lot about wizardry and what I really like about the Wizard of Oz as a character in himself is the way, I mean, just rewatching it again, like his demeanor, his dialogue is so great. And then I love his alliterations, alliterations, all of that, his kind of bluster. It's very funny. He's sort of almost like making jokes at the real world's expense that none of the characters he's talking to gets, but he's enjoying himself, which is all that matters. But then I love the way that he kind of points out how we have these medals and certificates and things that we put value on and that he's then using that magic of like here's a diploma here's a thing that will make you feel like it has value even though you had the real magic the whole time exactly and and as my daughter is now reading the book by herself for the first time i've read it to her before but she's now reading it for the first time by herself and she's going mom the scarecrow's making all the plans. He's not supposed to have a brain. I was like, ha ha, <laughs> keep reading. <laughs> yeah. And then what is, um, what, what does he give them in the book? I forget. In the book, um, the scarecrow gets his head stuffed with bran and pins and needles to make him sharp. And they're his brand new brains. Yep. Um, the tin woodman gets a sawdust heart cut mm. into his chest and the lion gets literal liquid courage poured into a bowl. And when he questions it, the wizard says, well, it's not actually courage until you drink it. Then it's inside you and it exists because courage exists from within. So liquid courage uh, is what he ends up receiving. It's like a beer, basically. Yeah. Beer, <laughs> relax, chill. You're, you're good. You're good. Well, let's talk about the wider series because, you know, I think... Maybe some people have seen the 1980 Return to Oz. One uh, of my favorites. Oh, one of the best L. Frank Baum translated films I, I think we have so far. Yeah. Well, I think I think that one also shows you there's a very distinct feeling to Oz. You know, like if you read a bunch of different children's fantasy series, you understand how there's something that's distinctly Harry Potter about those books and those worlds, and you can make more and more of these films that still have at least some element of that. And there's something about Oz where it's always these magical sidekicks that kind of get assembled in different ways and child protagonists and I think um, in weird, strange, surreal villains. And I think Return to Oz has all of those firing on four cylinders. Return to Oz was an amalgam of a few books. They combined the wonderful, the, the Marvelous Land of Oz, the second book with the third book, Ozma of Oz, um, they, because they, they, Dorothy is not in the second book. Mm-hmm. 
So they, of course, wanted to make Dorothy the main character. And Disney made the wildly un-Disney decision to make it a very dark and frightening movie. It's it it reads almost like a, a kid's horror movie. It's it's 1985 PG, which is really PG 13. Yeah. And um it's wonderful. It's magnificent. Now, people in 1985 did not get it. It was way ahead of its time, but it has gained a cult following, and I think it's one of the greatest Oz films we have thus far. And it certainly translates Bomb's work the best. But I love how they combine those books to bring us characters we otherwise hadn't seen on screen yet. Mm-hmm. And um, even in the background, I don't know if you noticed in the end scene in the Emerald City when they return, spoiler alert, um, but there is, uh, you can see the Shaggy Man in the background and Polychrome, the Rainbow's Daughter, and the Frogman and uh, the Braided Man and like all these really obscure bomb characters just like tucked into the background where only like hardcore fans would notice, but they went to the trouble of doing that, which was just mwah, chef's kiss. Fantastic. The extended cinematic Oz universe. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But I think what you're saying, the way that your mom was afraid of the Wicked Witch, I, if you talk to people of uh, more or less our generation who have seen that movie, they have fuzzy memories of like it being kind of terrifying. The wheelers are terrifying. Mombi removing her heads is terrifying. Yeah, it was. It did not frighten me because I had read the books by then and I was mm-hmm. excited. But and I actually I hadn't I was a little born a little bit after it came out and I saw a commercial for it while actually in Walt Disney World in the early 90s. And then I thought I made it up yeah. <laughs> and then I got the Internet. And did was immediately the first thing I Googled, of course, was The Wizard of Oz. And I realized, oh my gosh, no, wait, this thing was real. Ran to my local video store, found a copy and actually watched it all the way through. And I was so excited. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Yeah. So it didn't frighten me. I was a little too old for it to really, you know, scare me. But I mean, imagine seeing that as a little kid. I think I probably would have ran out screaming when mommy gets out of the bed and is Dorothy Gale. Ah! I mean, it it starts with Dorothy in a mental institution, and then getting it goes electroshock from there. therapy. Electroshock therapy. Yikes! Yeah, it's a Disney film. <laughs> when you wish. Ah! <laughs> now we can't summarize all of the books, but I'm just curious because you talk to a lot of other people. So when people ask you, "Wait, there's more books," how do you kind of summarize or describe uh, the the extended world of Frank L. Baum? I always say that. Um, Dorothy's journey doesn't end after Mm -hmm. that first book. And that I don't want to, I don't know how much you want me to spoil for your listeners. I would, I would strongly encourage people to go out and get the 14 novels. They're amazing. Um, They're 13 full novels and one uh, book of short stories. They um, expand the universe. You meet tons of cool new characters. We get a trans icon before trans was a thing. And um, it's a character is that. So Ozma begins the journey in the marvelous land of Oz as tip to Petarius. And that right. is because the wizard kidnapped her as a baby, gave her to the witch Mombi to hide and Mombi transformed her into a boy. And we discover by the end of that second book that the boy tip is actually the princess Ozma in disguise. And Glinda transforms her back to her true self. So I know a lot of trans people identify with Ozma as an icon. I had never known that. That's really fascinating. Yeah. It's I amazing. remember. Yeah, I remember liking Ozma a lot. Also just a great name. It is a great name. And they, you know, what I love about the books collectively is L. Frank Baum being a feminist himself, being mm-hmm. the son-in-law of Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who was a um, a very prominent suffragette. 
he wrote from a feminist perspective. So the whole book series reads um, as a collective feminist work. And Oz itself becomes a matriarchy, which exists in peace and tranquility. And as I said earlier, a socialist utopia where all share what they have and nobody ever goes without. That was one of the things that always stuck with me as a kid is there's this, I, I think it's a lot of the product of the time, but there's this politeness that all of the characters seem to have, even when they're in the most wild situations. And it's like, oh, I seem to have fallen into this person's house. Hello, how are you, magic talking tree? Oh, hello, you've fallen into my house. And then they, they have these very polite, almost formal conversations. Um, but I think it is, it's, it's, a, it's a fantasy world where it's a society that works better than us. Yeah, even the characters that are malicious, um, we were just rereading Dorothy and the Wizard in Oz for the gals at Down the Yellow Brick Pod for one of their podcasts. And um, one of the wicked characters says to the wizard, I am now going to stop your breathing. <laughs> Instead of, you know, what a fun way to say, I'm about to murder you. <laughs> I'm going to choke you out. Your breathing will stop. In about, he says, how long will it take? Well, about five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm really glad that you brought up Frank L. Baum's uh, feminism, because I think that's a very interesting part of the history. And I'm curious how you wrestle with the other part of Frank L. Baum's history, which is his really horrifying views on Native Americans, where he was oh, basically yeah. saying genocide is the solution. Let's call it like it is. He was a racist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was so he was not always a racist. He did reform and change his thinking later in life. That does not excuse what he published publicly. Mm -hmm. He moved to the Dakota territories at a time where there was a lot of unrest and um, white propaganda against the indigenous people. The massacre of uh, Sitting Bull happened during that period, and there was some fear of retribution for that slaughter. Mm -hmm. And he wrote in his newspaper that uh, elimination of the indigenous people was the only answer to keep them safe. When he moved back east, and ended up back in the city of Chicago, and then eventually ended up in Hollywood. Um, he was much more progressive in those later days. Uh, this this was pre-Oz days. He had a newspaper out in the Dakota Territories. He was uh, strapped for cash, pretty desperate. After he wrote The Wonderful Wizard of Oz and was flush with cash and his family was kind of set, he returned to his more liberal leanings. But the way I reconcile that in my mind is... First of all, L. Frank Baum is now dead for a very long yes. time. Um, I'm not saying, I refuse to say, well, it was the time. No, it was gross even then. Mm -hmm. And his descendants have since actually gone and made a public, a formal apology to that tribe. And they have accepted that apology. So, and he no longer benefits financially, or nor do his descendants from his work. It is now all public domain. Oh, that's right. Yeah, His books are now all public domain. So um, when people, this this resurfaced, I've, this has been public knowledge for a long time, yes, these newspaper totally. articles, but this resurfaced after the PBS documentary about L. Frank Baum's life that came out in April of 2021. People were calling for the cancellation of Oz. And I touched on that in a YouTube video because unfortunately, canceling Oz would not do anything to help the plight of the indigenous people even today. So rather than uh, do what one user demanded I do and sell all of my Oz things and donate the money um, to the indigenous cause, I think what we need to continue to do is call L. Frank Baum out on his nonsense and continue mm. to say how unacceptable those beliefs were. 
I think we can apply that to a variety of children's fantasy authors who have Unfortunately, yeah. When you have white men writing from their perspective, you are bound to have a lot of racism and nonsense. Or white women. J.K. Rowling comes to mind. Uh, Except um, that the, a key difference being that she still benefits financially every yes. time you buy something Harry Potter related, though. Exactly. I'll keep my opinions to myself on that. But I think I think this is a good, an interesting example, because on one hand, you have somebody who had views that were progressive for the time and also really abhorrent and backwards for the time, which makes me think that humans are complicated and uh, they're not just, you know, you can't just put them in a single box. Very and then true. I think there's also something to be said where this idea of canceling Oz to me is 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 quite stupid, not just for the financial considerations, but I think when people discover these sorts of imaginative realms, it really does seem like they're tapping into something powerful that kind of flows through them more than they are controlling and masterminding. And you can see that with this work so clearly because other authors have picked up the torch and continue to expand on that world. And then also every child or human who reads it has their own experience with Oz. And it's not like Oz is constantly, you know, the scarecrow's like, and by the way, we should kill all the Indians. Um, no, actually in the land of Vaz, they they espouse a viewpoint of universal acceptance of differences, mm-hmm. of loving each other for our differences and finding strength in the things that make us unique. And when I consider Oz as a whole, I think it is a net positive for the world. And I think canceling it would be a grave mistake. I believe that you can apply death of the author here and remove the work from its author because it is, again, no longer financially benefiting the racist. And it is now benefiting independent artists who are using this public domain work. So we are supporting Mm -hmm. now grassroots people, people who are publishing themselves, artists who are taking up this mantle. And I think that work is important to continue to carry. So the Oz canon that's continued, I know that there was a couple of key authors and then there's still people who have the, is there the family kind of grants permission to someone to be the lineage holder at this point? You know, They've kind of just taken up the mantle themselves and then have written a series of books that the, that the fandom itself has accepted. Ruth Plumley Thompson was the second royal historian of Oz. And for those who don't know, L. Frank Baum, in the, he was terrible at continuity. But later in the book series, he named himself the royal historian. And the books were written from his perspective as Dorothy was sending him the information from Oz directly. Mm. He was reporting her words of what was going on. Um, so other authors have taken up that mantle, Ruth Plumley Thompson being a notable one. And Roger Stantonbaum, who is still alive today, is uh, L. Frank Baum's great-great-grandson, and he has written a very prominent series of Oz books that I love very much. Cool. What are what are your favorites of the kind of later non-Frank L. Baum series? I'm not a fan of Ruth Plumley Thompson. Talk yeah. about racism in her writing. Yikes. She takes uh, Oz a couple steps back in terms of progressive values. Mm-hmm. So I skip those usually. I really love Roger Stanton Baum's books and um, Visitors from the Land of Oz was a later one that I really, really liked. I forget, I believe it was Martin Gardner who wrote that book. That was a fun one about the characters from the Land of Oz coming to the United States to promote an Oz movie. And it was just really, <laughs> really cool. <laughs> That's so meta. I love it. I, I know. That's one of my favorites. So yeah, I think um, Dorothy of Oz, the the... Um, the Lion and the Badge of Courage, um, and those Roger Stanton Baum books, and um, and a couple of others stand out to me. I also really like Eric Shanauer's Oz comic books. Oh, okay. Love his work. He kind of delves into the day to day of the Oz characters, and it's really fun. 
Well, that brings us to um, another series, which I think has had a huge impact on the series and expanding it, which is, of course, the Wicked books. And I've only read the 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 first one, but I was so blown away because I'd you know seen it around and kind of it was this phenomenon that was happening in the corner of my eye. And when I finally sat down at one point to read it, I was like, oh my god, this writing is so good! Like the prose is is excellent, and I think um, the author does such a great job of really fleshing out Oz and, and making it feel like a, a, a very real land that has its own sort of customs and traditions and landscapes and things. He definitely, Gregory Maguire's work, um, and I just want to put a warning out there to parents. This is not a book for your kids to read. The L. Frank Baum books, absolutely. Gregory Maguire's novels are adult novels. Please don't give them to your 10-year-old. So, Wicked, the, the Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West by Gregory Maguire <laughs> is a wonderful novel. I love it. But if you've seen the musical, do not buy the book expecting to get what you saw on stage uh, between those two covers, because that is not what you're going to get. You're going to be on a wild ride of adult fantasy, political allegory, violent anarchy. And it's wonderful, but it is not for the young children. <laughs> so I've never seen the musical. The musical is quite different. The musical Disneyfied Wicked, mm. The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, removed most of the violence, removed basically all of the uh, SEX. I don't know yeah. how adult your podcast is, so I don't want to get My podcast it. is pretty adult. You can say whatever you want. Sex. They removed all the sex. And yeah. they, um, you know, the songs are wonderful. It's super catchy. It's super, it's, somebody described it as being um, Broadway, the musical. It is very Broadway. Lots of sequins <laughs> and tap dancing and fun I love it. I've seen it 11 times. I treat them as separate canons, though. I treat the musical and the book as totally separate things because they hardly resemble each other except for a few names and dates and places. <laughs> <laughs> well, that takes us to, um, well, I think I saw one of your TikTok videos where you called this out, but um, there was another more recent Oz adaptation, uh, Oz the Great and Powerful. What are your thoughts on that one? Not a fan. Disney really, really, really did not do a good job taking the... And I, what's disappointing the most about Oz the Great and Powerful is that it was originally intended to be a really faithful adaptation of how the wizard dropped into the land of Oz, which is that he got lost in his balloon, mm -hmm. fell into this land, his name being Oscar Zoroaster, Phaedric Isaac, um, you know, Diggs. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting off the top of my head all of the it names. It spells out Oz Pinhead. I know Oz that. Oz Pinhead. It's yeah. Oz Zoroaster, Phaedric Isaac, Norman Hankel, Emmanuel Ambrose Diggs. And yes. um, he he called himself Oz for short. And the people were like, oh, all the male rulers of the land of Oz are called Oz. All the female rulers are called Oz. I'm like, you must be our ruler. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's like, Sure. So he commissioned uh, the Emerald City. He commissioned the building of the Yellow Brick Road. That, to me, is a very compelling story. What they did instead is Disney took this um, feminist literature, put James Franco as the main character. All of the witches are simping over James mm -hmm. Franco, which makes no sense. Um, the witch is evil because she's a woman scorned and she's just so heartbroken. And so she has no agency over her own evil deeds. And it's annoying and I hate it. <laughs> it's also hideous. I think that's yeah. one of the greatest sins is that it's, it's, it reminds me of some of like the later Tim Burton movies where it's Alice in Wonderland with this garish CGI monstrosity. I, and you know, some of it was really, I liked 
but but really it's it's so blatantly obvious that all they really wanted to do was pull on your nostalgia strings like how yeah. it goes from black and white to color oh mm-hmm. they do you know they add a couple of nods in there to oh the emily gale shows up in her little blue and white gingham dress yep. Yep. you know it's all it's all because disney just wants the right so bad <laughs> yeah it's a lot of like winking and elbowing and i don't know like again rewatching the earlier film today i think we really need to bring back some of these arts. The matte background painting in the original Oz films are so amazing. And it's just incredible to think of what you could do with literally a painted backdrop that transports you to another world. And then you have actors in front of a green backdrop with all kinds of computer generated things. And it, it just can feel so tacky and lifeless. Yeah. And I mean, it cannot possibly be less expensive to do CGI than it is to do matte paintings. I can't imagine I mean, they literally were um, colored pencil and crayon on canvas mm-hmm. with holes poked through to put lights in the Emerald City. Yep. Um, unfortunately, after the 1970 auction at MGM, almost all of those ended up in a dumpster. Oh, my God. A couple of people went and fished some out. So a couple were rescued, but a lot of them were just thrown out like they were worthless. But... Um, it, it's magic. It's it's still 83 years later. looks so good and you're right oz the great and powerful didn't age well and i'm sorry in a post me too era that script would never have passed never 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 Um, especially not starring james franco (laughs) but i mean the idea that all of the witches are just killing themselves to try to get his attention is just is so laughable and you know may perhaps because the original idea was to cast uh, Johnny Depp in that role, mm-hmm. um, I believe. Um, oh gosh, what's his name? Iron Man. Oh, um, Robert Downey uh, Jr. Right was considered for that role. Perhaps somebody with their gravitas and their charm would have worked. Mm-hmm. But James Franco. That's what I think is really missing in that film. He feels like he's kind of scrambling around, whereas the original wizard has so much charm. And I really, you know, as a wizard, as someone who thinks a lot about the wizard archetype, I really like that idea of there's this external image that's all of the pomp and the reputation precedes you. And that's really what he's working on is the idea of the wizard. And as I was watching the film today, um, you'll know the words better than I do, but like, you know, the, the song about, you know, it's basically he's a wizard because he's a wizard. He's a wonderful <laughs> wizard because he's a wizard and he does because, wizardly because, things. Because, 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 like, you know, it's a wizard, like you gotta. And there's all of the kind of reputation, which I coast by on all the time. People are like, I have a friend who's a wizard and it makes them happy <laughs> to say that. But then when you get there and you pull back the curtain, he still has real magic in the terms of the way that he's like charming and endearing and like puffs everybody up and really helps them reframe and believe in themselves. He's and a salesman. He's a salesman. And I think that, that, yeah, like he has the magic of words and mm -hmm. he's so charming that when he returns to Oz in later books, spoiler alert readers, he charms Ozma into not only forgiving him for his past transgressions, but letting him come back. And he and Glinda become the authority on who gets to practice magic and who does not, because laws are passed in the land of Oz later on that you must have the permission of Ozma, the wizard and Glinda in order to practice magic in the land of Oz. And if you do not, your magic is illegal. Oh, so, man. And this was to try to prevent the spawning of new wicked witches, which doesn't work, of course. But <laughs> the wizard actually returns to Oz and learns real magic from Glinda. He becomes her apprentice and learns real magic. So in the end, he becomes not a humbug, but a real wizard indeed. 
maybe there's hope for me after all. I can outgrow my <laughs> humbug roots. Now, I learned this several years ago, and this absolutely blew my mind. But the the Wizard of Oz film that everyone knows is the like fifth film adaptation or something like there was so many more beforehand. So can you give us a little history about uh, the Wizard of Oz on film? Sure. Well, the Wizard of Oz on film began with L. Frank Baum. He invested in a film company, the Oz Film Company. And it went bankrupt, of course, because L. Frank Baum was a terrible businessman. But he did make several short, silent Oz films that you can still watch today. They're available on YouTube. They're on the special features of the DVD. And then in 1925, a big-budget silent film came out with Oliver Hardy of uh, Laurel and Hardy fame as the Tin Mm -hmm. Man. And... uh, it was terrible. It bombed. It had almost, it resembles the book in zero ways. They wrote yeah. a basically completely new story. It's ridiculous and um, quite racist. So prepare yourself for that. Also available to watch, but it is interesting to see um, Oliver Hardy before he was, you know, Oliver Hardy mm-hmm. uh, getting out there and being the Tin Man. That's always fun to watch. But yeah, uh, The Wizard of Oz, and this is when people say to me like, oh my gosh, they can't remake The Wizard of Oz. Well, The Wizard of Oz was a remake. So, you know, don't panic. It's very, I think it's very important to continue to reinterpret classic literature Mm -hmm. for new generations and to not be so married to the classics so much so that we don't allow new generations to explore the material. Um, Because actually New Line Cinemas has greenlit a new Oz movie and they are owned by Warner Brothers. So there is a possibility that they will remake the 1939 film with the music. They haven't announced yet whether or not they're going to do that or do it totally based in Bomb's world. But if they choose to go that way, let's enter it with an open mind. I love seeing new interpretations of old works. I think that's a great way to put it. And I have what I am going to call like my karaoke philosophy of remakes, where my frustration is not that, you know, it's a remake. It's that you did the obvious choice and you did it badly. Like, yes. I, I, I don't need to see someone sing Total Eclipse of the Heart. I've seen it a million times. <laughs> like, it's a fun song, but I'm, you know, it's been done. And to see someone do it badly is just so frustrating. So we already have the beloved original Wizard of Oz to watch somebody do a lame modern update I don't think we need, but there's so much in the Oz canon that could be explored, right? And I mean, hey, if you're a film studio looking for a franchise, like we've just talked about, there's so many characters and things that you could explore and get deep into in those books. To be honest with you, I would much rather see a Netflix series a la N with an E that really Mm -hmm. goes for the later books because I feel like we've seen those first three books done ad nauseum. I'd love to see the later books explored. Perhaps even Emerald City of Oz. That's my favorite. Yeah. Is it okay if I spoil a little bit here? Totally. Yeah. No so one's, in Emerald City of Oz. My audience is illiterate. No one's going to read any of these books. <laughs> it's the sixth book in the series. It was L. Frank Baum's attempt to end the book series. He was tired of writing mm. them. He wanted to leave the world of Oz behind. And so Dorothy, her family goes bankrupt. They lose the farm. And she asks Ozma's permission to move her entire family to the land of Oz. And Ozma grants that permission. So they get a farm in Munchkinland. Dorothy gets to live in Oz for the rest of her days with her family. And um, Ozma decides that with the uh, revolution of aeroplanes, it's time to lock down the land of Oz and not have any further contact with the royal historian. And so they magically cut themselves off, which they later reversed because Alfred Baum went bankrupt and needed to write more books. Um, (laughs) again, not giving a fig about continuity. And, um, so Oz does come back, but why haven't we seen that done on film? That's brilliant. Yeah, 
Absolutely. I think, I, again, some of my memories are fuzzy here, but I feel like the additions that I have, some of them start with Frank L. Baum writing like little forwards where he talks about all the letters from children that he was getting at the time where all these kids were so excited about more adventures in Oz. And It was um, the Harry Potter of its time. A new book came out every mm-hmm. year. They clamored for them. It was an exciting tradition. And um, he did actually take ideas that children sent him and incorporate them in his books. And he would write in his forward, like Susie or so-and-so from here, I got your letter and it just so happens Dorothy spoke to me about that. And it will, you'll see that in this book. And it's really fun that he did that. So yeah, he wrote forwards in all of his books. He dedicated all of his books. His first book, of course, is dedicated to his beloved wife, Maud. And um, yeah, his books are so unique their time so so unique there's two things that i remember from my childhood and i'm, I'm going to reread the series so i'm excited to kind of rediscover more but um they're just really striking images i remember so i think there's a glass cat yes eureka. and you can see you can see the internal organs is that right of i'm of sorry eureka is the flesh and blood cat and believe it is oh my gosh i'm forgetting her name now Oz fans skewer me uh but yes yeah. there is a cat that has brains that you can see them work that's her catchphrase <laughs> Um, and Eureka is, uh, her very misbehaved cat that is in, uh, Dorothy and the Wizard and Oz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dorothy has a variety of pets. I feel like. Yeah. She Toto, has... Poor Toto gets, uh, supplanted a lot of times by other animals. Belina the chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, but Belina ends up relocating and staying in Oz after her trip. Yeah. Eureka can't wait to get out of there. She's like, Ugh, I hate this place. So yeah, there's all kinds of other animals that come along we discover, of course, later on that Toto can actually talk and has been able to talk the whole time and just decided not to. That little minx. <laughs> <laughs> but Ulfric Baum makes references constantly about how he tilted his head as if he understood, but he totally does and just never yeah. said anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other one, and I remember being really obsessed with this idea as a kid, is that at some point there's a tree that grows... I think like miniature versions of every kind of fruit. Yes. And I was like, oh, I want one of those so bad. That would be amazing to just have. It's like. And the lunch pail trees. Which, what, what are those? They grow actual lunch boxes on them with food ready to go. <laughs> oh, great. Very convenient. Very convenient. Now, the other Oz memory that I have as a kid is, again, because it went into the public domain, there was a lot of different things that got made. And I remember one of them was a cartoon that I don't remember any of the other details. Um, but as a kid, there's like, I, I feel like there's a very interesting experience of quality as a kid. Like the Disney films were very well made. And like you see the Lion King or the Little Mermaid and you're like, wow. wow. And then you see some um, Don Bluth cartoon from the 80s and you're like, this is somehow like not as good. And I like don't <laughs> have the full words to critique it. But like something about this feels kind of creepy or cheap or weird and i just remember this oz cartoon that i had that i watched a bunch as a kid but it was very like the songs were terrible and it was very just kind of like well there's a few there's a few of them so then in 1990 they actually made a licensed follow-up cartoon to the 1939 film which Mm -hmm. is really cute it only ran for 13 episodes it was a saturday morning cartoon but they did a really nice job carrying on the story yeah. The Wicked Witch comes back from the dead and her flying monkeys, you know, they continue to wreak havoc. Um, there's the anime series that ran on HBO, the Sinar anime series. That was really fun. It was 52 episodes and they condensed it into 90 minute movies for video release, but they were really, really good. Do those deal with the wider Oz world or are those? They do. And they go oh, a little off 
um, they go, they get worse as they go on. They make it to Ozma of Oz and then they kind of go off brand yeah. and into weird places, but most of it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and they cover the Gnome King and, you know, the Growlywog and things you don't see really in other places, which is lots of fun. What is your favorite uh, kind of obscure Oz interpretation? Huh, obscure. So the 1990 cartoon does hold a very special place in my heart because I grew up watching that one and renting it on VHS. But I think um, if we're talking contemporary adaptations, I love Tin Man, the sci-fi movie, the sci-fi miniseries. It ran on the sci-fi channel in 2007. And it was three two-hour episodes. Zoe Deschanel starred as Dorothy, the Dorothy character, Gigi. Uh, Alan Cumming was our scarecrow analog. Um, and it was a sci-fi wild sort of adultish adventure and it was six hours total and it was magnificent. Oh, amazing. I've never even heard of this. Oh, you should go watch it. It's fun. <laughs> it is cheesy sci-fi fun. <laughs> now, if you were to live in Oz, where would you live? Well, I think I'd probably have a chateau somewhere in uh, Munchkinland and I would have an apartment in the Emerald City. Kind of go back and there forth. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a country house. Exactly. Because I'm, I'm more of a country girl, but I like visiting the city. Take the express bus down the yellow brick road. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, how did you end up, uh, what led to you doing all of the um, social media stuff around Oz culture? I started. I was became a member of the International Wizard of Oz Club when I was nine. Mm -hmm. And I started, um, I made a vlog about my collection off just when YouTube was first created in 2007, totally didn't think anything would become of it, threw it up there, then went off to college, totally forgot about it, came home, um, restarted my uh, personal email because I hadn't used it while I was away. And I had thousands of messages saying like, I collect Oz stuff too. I didn't know other people did this. This is so cool. And I continued posting. I've had the YouTube channel now since then. And then last year, started posting on TikTok. And that went viral pretty quickly. So we're up to now 65,000 some odd followers on TikTok. And people are really responding positively to it. And so just, you know, continuing to spread the good word of Oz. <laughs> what do you think is the, the like, like, what is you think the thing that is so resonant about the good word of Oz, why is that, you know, nearly or more than a hundred years later, like, why is that still so powerful for people? Because the journey itself is really about finding self-actualization. It's actually about going out into the world, finding your found family of your people, building that life with the people who bring you to the home, which is your self-actualized self. <laughs> I love that so much. In um in like the Western occult tradition, they'll talk about the holy guardian angel, which is kind of your your higher self, your you know, and like you know, I I I also work as a hypnotherapist, and so I see clients, and I'm often talking about how do you connect with your sort of deeper true self. So I love that idea of no place like home, really being uh, a metaphor for how you center yourself in that. Exactly. Well. Let's bring this uh, to a conclusion, go back over the rainbow. And uh, this is the part where we, if we come up with a spell. So this is the idea of what is something that the listeners at home can do where it's just going to bring a little bit of this magic into their own world. Well, I can think of a spell from Return to Oz that perhaps a few of our listeners would be familiar with. Yeah, Weog, Tiog, Piog. 
And that is the spell that brings the gump to life with the powder of life. So if you're walking around today and you're feeling like you need to bring yourself back to life, try Weog, Tiog, Piog. Oh, I love that. Yeah, get a little gump back in your life. (laughs) Awesome, Victoria. It's been wonderful chatting with you. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much. For more of Victoria's magic, you can find her on Instagram and TikTok at the Oz Vlog, or visit her YouTube channel, Tori.Calamito. And for more of the showmanship, hucksterism, and bullshit that is this podcast as a ritual, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash this podcast as a ritual, where I pull back the curtain and show you the inner workings of this podcast with bonus content, announcements, uh, virtual hangouts, and all the other stuff that we do. So if you'd like to join our merry little posse as we skip down the yellow brick road to a slightly better reality, visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual. Until then, I'm your wizard, Devin Person, and I'll see you somewhere over the rainbow.